It is our good fortune to be able to be here, to have the opportunity, to have the interest, to have the resources, to have the support, to hear and practice the Dharma. And if you stop and think about how rare this conjunction of conditions is, you'll see how much of a blessing it is in our life to actually be here. It's important that we acknowledge the blessings in our life, our health, our resources, our energy, our interest, the opportunity to hear the Dharma, because too easily and too often we are kind of preoccupied with the problems, the difficulties, the hassles in our life. And if we don't acknowledge the full range of our experience, we may think or we may fall into believing that life is really a struggle. Mindfulness practice encourages us to acknowledge the whole show, or the full catastrophe, as Orba the Greek would say. And the magic of mindfulness is that it can know, it can acknowledge anything, from the most gross and obvious to the most subtle and sublime, from the most exalted and noble and spiritual to the most depraved and disgusting and uh, unworthy. Mindfulness covers the whole spectrum. Nothing escapes the eye of mindfulness. In time, with practice, a heart, a mind opens, and we will discover everything about ourselves, about each other, about the way of life. What we are actually doing is uncovering or discovering the constellation of conditions that gives rise to the appearance of me. Tonight I want to talk about mindfulness, because mindfulness is, among all other teachings, it is the essential Dhamma of the Buddha's teachings. It is that quality of mind, that quality of heart, that is the powerhouse of developing the mind, of evolving the mind. Without mindfulness, well, as Upandita, my teacher, used to say, uh, life without mindfulness is like food without salt. Bland. Mindfulness really um, opens the spirit of life to us, opens us to the spirit of life. And of all the talks, and all the discourses, and all the instruction and guidance that the Buddha gave to his students, and in the Theravada tradition we have some 40 volumes of it, some consider, and many consider actually, the discourse on mindfulness to be the most important. Because in it, he talks about the development of mind that occurs through the practice of mindfulness. In it he says, for the purification of your mind, for the mind of beings, for overcoming sorrow, 
distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the realization of the liberated mind. One should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations of mindfulness. And one who does abide contemplating the body as body, the mind as mind, feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, will put away covetousness and grief for the world. That's a pretty extraordinary statement. For someone to say, if you do this, if you be mindful of the body and mind, you will overcome and put aside all pain, all fear, all stress, all anxiety, all disappointment, frustration, anger, unfulfilled desires. You'll overcome it all. What a guarantee. I don't know any uh, other counselors or therapists or teachers extent in the U.S. today that offers such a guarantee. And so we should really consider, do we believe that? Do we believe what the Buddha said? Do we have some faith? Are we, you know, kind of willing to accept it just so far? Where are we? How are we going to know? Unless you think that the Satipatthana Sutta is some very esoteric and very sublime teaching, I want to read a part of it so you can actually hear the Buddha's words as we have them recorded today. How he was talking about mindfulness. This really exalted practice that promises so much. He says, bhikkhus, monks, nuns, those who are practicing, yogis in this case, yogis, the yogi, following the practice of my teaching, having gone to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty solitary place, sits down cross-legged, keeping his or her body erect, and sets up mindfulness, orienting it towards the object of concentration. And then with entire mindfulness, he or she breathes in, and with entire mindfulness, he or she breathes out. Breathing in a long inhalation, he or she is conscious of breathing in a long inhalation. Or breathing out a long exhalation, he or she is conscious of breathing out a long exhalation. Breathing in a short inhalation, he or she is conscious of breathing in a short inhalation, or breathing out a short exhalation, he or she is conscious of breathing out a short exhalation. He or she trains him or herself to be clearly conscious of the whole stretch of the incoming breath at its beginning, its middle, and at its end. Trains him or herself to be clearly conscious of the whole stretch of the out-breath, the outgoing breath, at its beginning, its middle, and its end. By being fully conscious of the inhalation, he or she trains him or herself to calm down the strong inhalation as they breathe in, and by being fully conscious of the exhalation, she or he trains him or herself to calm down the strong exhalation as he breathes out. And it goes on like that. That's the teaching. Lucky for us, there have been some commentaries written on this sutta. <laughs> and what I'm going to offer tonight is another in the long list of commentaries on how to understand what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about being mindful of the breath, being mindful of the four foundations of mindfulness. The characteristic of mindfulness is to not float away. I used the example earlier of this retreat 
of the fork sticking into the potato. Mindfulness is the energy and the power of mind that sticks into the object. It doesn't float away. It doesn't just kind of glance off the object and float away. It goes into the object. My teacher Upandita used to say, it plunges into the object. It doesn't let it escape. But what happens with this plunging into the object or this sticking into the object is we come to observe it. Mindfulness is the power of observation. Learning to observe, to be with in a very intimate way, our very personal experience. Now you'd think we've lived as long as we have, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more, with no one else but ourselves. You'd think we would know ourselves pretty intimately by now. And yet, all it takes is a day of practice to realize we don't know ourselves very well at all. And it's only through training the mind in this and developing this power of observation, mindfulness, that we begin to see more intimately who and what we really are. What is going on in this mind-body process? When I say the power of observation, I mean, quite simply, that natural awareness that occurs when we're not distracted, when we're not caught up in thoughts, fantasies, lost in some enchanted daydream. And how do we do that? We connect and sustain our attention on the object of awareness. The breath, the body, sounds, thoughts, feelings, emotions, the whole package of this mind and body. This quality of observation is not explaining, is not interpreting, it's not commenting on, it's not judging or evaluating what is being known. The fork has no idea of the taste of that potato, right? The fork doesn't know a thing about the taste of that potato or apple or carrot. Mindfulness, too, isn't evaluating what is being known. It just knows things clearly, without comment, a bare attention. What makes this so difficult? It's not. I mean, if someone was saying, be mindful of your breath, be mindful of your thought, be mindful of that sound, be aware of the humming of the machine in the back of the room, be aware that you're seeing, you can be mindful. You can be aware of all that. What's difficult is to remember to be mindful. We close our eyes, we sit down, we say, be mindful, and we promptly forget. <laughs> All of the instruction, the stories, the inspiration, the uh, encouragement, it's all to plant seeds in your stream of consciousness that hopefully will sprout when you're lost in some daydream. You had the experience sitting, trying to be mindful, totally lost in thought. When you're lost in thought, you don't know it. You're lost. You're, you're completely oblivious. You, you could be anywhere, anytime, any place, with anyone. It doesn't matter. You don't know it. You're lost. But somehow, out of that enchanted story, plop, we drop out of it somehow. Just, just like that. Boom. We're back here, mindful again. How did that happen? Did you intend to stop the train of thought right then? No, you didn't even know you were thinking. Did you uh, 
you know, used one of those useful techniques that we've offered? No, you didn't use any technique. You didn't have any intention. You didn't do anything to it to make that happen. All that happened was you recognized it. You recognized presence of mind. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is that ability to recognize presence of mind. In one sense, there's nothing you can do to cultivate it. Oh my goodness, what are we doing? (laughs) All you can do is take in all these seeds of reminders. And when the conditions ripen, those seeds will sprout. Boom. You'll be mindful. Our task is to extend the growth of that little sprout into the next moment, the next moment, the next moment, the next moment. So when you drop out of a fantasy, out of a train of thought, and you find yourself here, mindfully here, grab on to that mindfulness and don't let go. Now this is one place where you can, you know, hang on, get attached, you know, really <laughs> cling for all your worth, you know, to mindfulness. Not of the object, but of that quality of clear, present knowing. That's our job. It is really hard to learn how to observe clearly. And there's an interesting, a wonderful little story about uh, a graduate student of Louis Agassiz. Louis Agassiz was a Swiss naturalist back in the mid-1800s who studied glaciers, made a name for himself, studying uh, how glaciers uh, were born, lived, died, moved, and how they, how they evolved. And he came on a speaking tour in the States. He was wildly popular. There was all kinds of Agassiz clubs set up all over America, just from this. And anyway, Harvard University decided he'd be a good person to have on their uh, faculty. They invited him. A lot of students wanted him as a, uh, an advisor, a mentor, and it was something of a, a kind of a, a lottery or a competition to get selected by him, part of which involved a uh, personal interview with him. So one student was writing about his experience uh, with Louis Agassiz, and he said, when the initial interview was at an end, Agassiz asked the student when he would like to begin, and the student answered, right now. So Agassiz then went to get, oh, He went to the shelves and picked a dead fish out of one of the jars on his shelf. And it was a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen. And this fish was placed in a pan and set in front of the student. And the student was told to look at it, to observe it. Agassiz left the room and didn't return until later in the afternoon. (laughs) So Samuel Scudder was a student, and he described this experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. (laughs) He writes, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. (laughs) From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed the most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, His only comment was that the young man must look again. He writes, I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not. But I see how little I saw before. (laughs) The following day, Having thought of the fish through most of the night, <laughs> Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Aha, of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. 
Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. Learning to observe is of inestimable value, something you cannot buy, and once you have it, you cannot get rid of it. Observing, remembering to observe, remembering to be present. One technique that's helpful in developing continuity of mindfulness is to ask yourself the question, what? What is this experience? We're trained through our educational system to mostly ask the question, why? In this practice, we don't really want to get involved in why. That really gets into problem solving. Remember, life's not a problem. We're asking what? And if you allow yourself a single word answer, you won't get into explanations, rationalizations, uh, posturings, interpretations. You'll just acknowledge exactly what is known. What is this? Breathing in. What is that? Breathing out. What is this? Liking, thinking, planning, tingling, aching, pain, stabbing, hearing, thinking, seeing. We're not explaining why we're seeing what we're seeing and how it's connected to the pain in the back and, and the memory that we have of something that someone said a long time ago and that person, their relationship to us and, and on and on and on, the, our personal history. No, we're just asking, what is this? giving ourselves a one-word answer. And that one-word answer, uh, labeling or noting that experience, develops perception. Perception is recognition. Perception is the ability to recognize what you're aware of. Why do we want to develop perception? Because perception is the proximate cause of mindfulness. If you recognize what you're aware of, you're more likely to recognize the next moment. If you don't recognize what you're aware of, you're less likely to be mindful the next moment. That's the function of per perception. The way to train perception is to note what you are aware of, to recognize it. But let's face it, the breath is so boring, right? been there, done that. I mean, how, how much can you see in the breath, right? Like the fish. How much can you see in this fish? Well, Einstein is uh, known as a pretty unique fellow, observer of the way things are, you might say. And he says of himself, I think that people generally overestimate me, but I don't consider myself superior or different from any other human. I am not more gifted than anybody else. I am just more curious and maybe more patient. Mm -hmm. So what can we learn about ourselves in this moment if we were a little more curious, just a little more curious and a little more patient? Mindfulness, the power of observation, the ability to remember, to be present, a certain carefulness and continuity in the recognition of what we're aware of. Mindfulness acts as an inner mentor. Probably by now you've had the experience of noticing that we spend a lot of time on the cushion doing a personal history review, right? Stuff, old stuff comes up out of the past, things that we've long forgotten, and we see them anew. We see them with a fresh, clear, uncommenting, undefended vision. And sometimes it hurts because we see things as they truly were. And maybe it's for the first time. 
Because at the time we see things, the things that happen to us, we defend ourselves, we, we interpret events, we explain it to us, we, we have a whole story that goes with it that may have nothing to do with the way it really is. Mindfulness clears away all of that interpretation, all of that uh, explanation, all of that justification, rationalization, defensive posturing, and sees things as they truly are. And in that, it gives us the opportunity to establish a new relationship to the way things are, or the way things have been in our life. This role of inward mentor is most important. It is the guide to our own personal growth and evolution of understanding. No one else can do that for us. Only we can know where we are hurting and how to be free and when we're free of pain and suffering. Other teachers, guides, friends can point and suggest and uh, kind of encourage, but only we know for ourselves when we're open and when we're closed. And to know how to navigate through the conditions of life and to make the right choices that lead to increased openness, less fear, less clinging, less defensiveness. We need that clarity of bare, attentive mindfulness. It doesn't lie to us. It doesn't present things uh, in a skewed way. It doesn't present them in a pretty way, in a, in a way that will entice us into some self-defended posture, self-image that we have to protect. It just continually throws up reality in front of us. This is the way it is. It's our choice to accept it, to reject it, to see clearly, or to distort it. As long as we continue to practice mindfulness, we'll keep seeing clearly. When we stop practicing mindfulness, inevitably the old habits of mind enter the mind, cloud and distort what we're seeing, and we make unskillful choices, unskillful decisions in our life. In this personal history review that we inevitably go through, when we uncover the stuff of our past that has so conditioned our sense of ourself in the present, we have this new opportunity, or we have an opportunity to see again and to acknowledge, to accommodate the way things are and to establish a new relationship. There was a period of time when I was in Burma, and I was doing my practice, doing uh, in Vipassana practice for some years, and I came upon my father. Well, I lived with my father for, you know, 20 some years until, and, until he passed away. And I, I knew him, and I had a lot of memories of how he was and how I was in relationship to him. But here in the midst of Burma, 20 years later, I saw things about my father I never knew. Or, I should say, that I never could acknowledge. My father was an alcoholic. And I knew that, but I didn't understand, I didn't really know what that meant to me, how that felt to me growing up, and what kind of uh, emotional uh, tone existed in the household and in relationship to my father and the whole oh, well what happened 
all these memories started flooding my mind. And I couldn't, I couldn't deny him. I couldn't say, oh, no, 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 that, he wasn't like that. It didn't happen that way. It's like mindfulness was so strong, it wasn't going to be put off. You have to see things as they are. And, of course, I suffered. I didn't want to see it that way. I didn't want to believe that about myself, about my father. And so it took some time, repeated uh, seeing, this is the way it is, feeling, this is the way it really was. This is the way it is, this is the way it is. And of course I went through a lot of rage, a lot of anger, a lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation. Just, I was so mm, fired up, mm, mm, not good. Mm, mm, I'm glad my father wasn't there. Whew. But he didn't need to be there. I didn't need to process that with him. The process is all within myself. How to come to a new relationship to this truth of the way things are. Ultimately, came to an understanding that, you know, my father did the best he could. He lived the way he did. That was the best he could with his conditions and with his uh, uh, lack of Dharma practice, if you will. Am I going to let his behavior control my life? How to disentangle ourselves from all of that conditioning. And we all have parents. We all have kids. We all have grandparents. We all live in a community. We live in a nation. We, live, we, have, we have a government, an economic system, everything which is conditioning our sense of ourself. How are we ever going to be free of this conditioning? Until and unless we're free of conditioning, we're an automaton. We're on automatic pilot. Our buttons are getting pushed and we're getting jerked around by things that we are unconscious of. The process of mindfulness exposes this conditioning. And it's not, it's not always pleasant. But we see where the roots of our sense of self are coming from. And in that process of uncovering and discovering and exposing and learning how to let go of the fear, let go of the clinging, let go of the interpretation, let go of that sense of self, that was constellated in that relationship. That's how we evolve. That's how we truly grow into this state or this condition or this experience of freedom. Insight is the practice of freedom. Mindfulness is the tool of freedom. process of uncovering our conditioning. Inevitably we find much of the time we are lost in and enchanted by, uh, entranced by the conversation, or I should say the monologue going on in our head. <laughs> we are for the most part lost in the words that float through our mind. And every time that you get lost in your practice and you space out, you're, 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 you're spacing into some enchanted, entranced state of the mind commenting away. It's so familiar that we're unaware of it. It's so familiar. We have repeated the story so many times. We're numb to it. We live unconsciously, on automatic pilot. Mindfulness is to awaken from this delusion. Mindfulness is the tool of disillusionment. 
Did you ever think you was going to go on a retreat to get disillusioned? <laughs> and that isn't how we advertise these retreats. Come, get disillusioned. No, disillusionment has this uh, kind of a, a feel of like, oh, this is not good. I don't want to be disillusioned, right? Oh. Yeah, it's like, uh, I'll be disappointed, I'll be uh, lost, I'll be empty, I'll be disillusioned. I'll have to deal with reality. But disillusionment or mindfulness, disillusionment means living without illusion. That's what it means. When we understand that, then that's what we want, really. But the feeling that comes with it is one of emptiness. You ever been disillusioned? You know, you have, a, you have, a, you have a, an infatuation with a teacher. You think, wow, they're really, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of bhakti energy there, a lot of devotion. And then they do something, and you get totally disillusioned. What's it feel like? It feels like a big hole has opened up in your life. Empty. Or, or you know, you fall in love. Everyone's done that. You fall in love, and the person that you're in love with is just ideal (laughs) for a week, (laughs) right? And then they do not only one thing, probably a lot of things that disillusion you. And they're no longer that radiant, angelic, perfect partner. And what happens? Well, there's this big, empty, yawning hole opens up inside of us somewhere. It's good to be disillusioned. It's good to come out of that dream, to come out of that monologue, to, as Sansanim, one Korean Zen master says, to cut thinking mind. To cut off the stream of thinking mind. Or, as Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda, to stop the internal dialogue. Or, it's not really a dialogue, it's a monologue, mostly. However, if we try to stop our thoughts, we will be notably unsuccessful. Only by paying attention to them, acknowledging them, and not in, in kind of disentangling our identification with them do we bring thoughts to an end. Not by trying to stop them, but by totally opening to and accepting them. <laughs> Mindfulness is a what is called a sobana quality of mind, a beautiful quality of mind. And when mindfulness is present, along with it comes all these other beautiful qualities of mind, such as Confidence, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, non-attachment, non-aversion, non-delusion. When we're locked into our personality, our conditioned personality, Our behavior is very fixed, rigid, predictable. Our beliefs are usually dogmatic. Uh, We find it difficult to accept uh, criticism or guidance, even if it's skillful and useful. Because everything is seen as a threat to this sense of self. With mindfulness, we gradually kind of... um, poke holes in that defensive barrier and our sense of self becomes much more porous, much more uh, fluid, much more dynamic. We see the dynamic nature of a sense of self. And with it comes a lightening, a, I should say, a lightening of the mind where the mind becomes flexible, becomes adaptable, becomes um, resilient and the, the, the power of mindfulness 
is in the development of strength of mind, stamina, the ability to withstand the truth. And it takes a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of confidence, energy, determination, steadfastness to see things as they are. But it's not a rigid, fixed, inflexible, static strength. It's a resilient strength. The mind becomes not only uh, strong, but resilient, where it can adapt to, open to, be with, flexibly, quickly, any experience. I'm sure you see it already, how there are times when you, you, you even on a second, third day of retreat, where the body just begins to feel lighter. The mind just begins to feel lighter, more open, more expansive. And if, for those of you who've done longer retreats, you know that it can get really, the body can get very, very light, very transparent, very open. The mind too. One is a reflection of the other. Stamina and resilience, qualities that develop through or with the momentum of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the workhorse of mental development. Mental development, as I mentioned last night, is of two kinds. Development of tranquility or concentration, focusedness of mind, and the development of insight or understanding. How does mindfulness do this? Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche says of the mind, he was a great Tibetan teacher um, of this century. He said, what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, triggered off by such circumstances as an unexpected meeting with an adversary or a friend. And unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. When we come to practice, we see this turbulent vortex of thoughts that we call our mind. And the large part of the initial days of a retreat or initial stages of practice is getting a handle on our anger, our hatred, our aversion, our disappointment, our frustration, our unfulfilled desires, wanting, yearning, clinging, our doubt, our confusion, our sleepiness, our restlessness. This vortex of thought that just is spinning wildly in our life, jerking us around and throwing us into the future, into the past, with no sense of tranquility in our life. Have you had that experience? <laughs> Am I speaking the truth here? Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. We've all seen that a lot. The first task of mindfulness is to calm it down. But how do you do that? Do you say, I don't want to be restless anymore, I don't want to be sleepy, I don't want to be aversive, that would be a good one. Uh, <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. So how does mindfulness do it? Only by turning to these experiences of frustration, disappointment, doubt, fear, desire. Turning to them, opening to them, feeling our way into them, seeing how it is. Observing, how is it to be lost or locked into doubt, 
fear, desire, anger, irritation, frustration, d depression, whatever, whatever your flavor is, turn to it, open to it. Remember the Buddha said, abide clearly, ardent, I mean, uh, ardent and clearly aware of the four foundations of mindfulness. That includes the body and the mind. These emotions or these mental states, disappointment, frustration, all that. I might also mention the, the, the more pleasant qualities. Happiness, joy, ecstasy, contentment, equanimity, balance, uh, you know, all of those too, also mental states. Turn to them, open to them, see them as they truly are. Don't be afraid of doubt. Don't be afraid of anger. Don't be afraid of disappointment. Be afraid of acting it out unconsciously, yes. But don't be afraid of experiencing it fully. To discover, really, what is it like? What is this experience? You know, we all have our own uh, top five torments. <laughs> right? You know? One of mine is impatience. Oh. I have, uh, uh, <clears throat> I should say, I experience a lot of impatience. What's so scary about impatience? I've asked myself this a lot. <laughs> Afraid you won't get something done in this lifetime? <laughs> Don't worry, you'll be back. You'll have another opportunity. <laughs> but. Why are we so afraid of doubt? Why are we afraid of fear? Because we never have really looked. We don't really look. Fear comes into our horizon, on, out of the corner of our eye, we get a glimpse of it, and we turn around and run as fast as we can away from it. Mindfulness practice says, wait, 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 stop. Oh, rest, wait. Let's turn around and look at this. What does fear feel like? What does desire, unsatisfied desire, feel like? As long as we pursue the objects of our desire, we will forever be only momentarily satisfied. You know, you get what you want, ah, relief. Your mind turns to something and say, hey, what's that? I think I, I think I need a little bit of that, too. You go get, you pursue that for, you know, 10 years, you finally get it, ah, momentary relief. Something else goes by in my mind. Oh, what's that? I think I'd like to have some of that, too. And there's really no relief in trying to satisfy desire. The only relief comes when we turn to it and we say, okay, what does desire really feel like? Not what does getting the object of my desire feel like, but what does desire itself feel like? It's unpleasant. All of these torments of the mind are unpleasant. That's why we run away. We don't want to feel them. But when we do, turn to them. Steady our attention, open to them, feel them. One thing we discover really quickly is they don't last very long. We've been running, I've been running 50 years now. Running from impatience. I've been trying to look, you know, I've been getting better at it, but still it pushes me around. I'll get a handle on it eventually. These great escapes from mindfulness, sloth and torpor, doubt, desire, aversion in all of its forms, restlessness, these are the five hindrances. You recognize them? The five hindrances to a tranquil mind. We don't overcome them by pushing them away, denying them, avoiding them, stuffing them. We overcome them by opening to them feeling them, allowing them to pass right through us, physically, mentally, and seeing that. That's how we overcome. There are other ways, of course, you know, you can, when you have a lot of uh, irritation, aversion, hatred, practice metta. You have a lot of re restlessness, practice stillness. You have a lot of desire, practice uh, developing the perception of loathsomeness. You know, there's all kinds of antidotes. 
but they're just temporary suppressions. That's good. Gets a little relief, temporary relief, but only through opening to and seeing them clearly can we actually let them go. Tranquilizing the mind uh, and, and letting go. But our mind is like Wall Street. This is my Wall Street mind image. <clears throat> we are forever being jerked around by whatever comes into our mind, right? Now, I've got to tell you this story. Kamala and I were living, uh, renting an apartment, uh, a house a few years ago, and the owner told us uh, she was going to sell the house. Oh, no. We thought we've got to go find a new place to live. What a burden. Then we heard from one of our um, friends, a real estate agent, oh, there was a house um, further out uh, in a nice place on Maui that might be available. Oh, got excited. So let's make an appointment. Let's go see. So we, the day came. We had an appointment. Let's go um, see this house. So we're driving way out. <laughs> I mean, way out, uh, uh, further and further away from everything. And we're, then we turn down this road, and it's not even a paved road. It's a dirt road, and it's like a jungle. I mean, the, 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 the grass and the bushes are growing up on both sides. It's like you're driving through a tunnel. They're scraping the car. And I thought, oh, my God, are, we, we don't want to live out here. This is, uh, no way. I don't, I'm not even interested in going any further. I don't even want to go look. Got to where, where the house was. We drove into the yard. Wow, beautiful house. What a view. Hey, you know, I got elated. I got all excited now. So we looked around the house and, hey, this is pretty nice. This might be a good place. Uh, how much does it cost? We heard the price. Ooh. Okay, <laughs> can't afford that. So, so we said, well, I guess we can't afford that one. So we let it go. Later we find out the um, real estate agent talked to the owner about us and uh, because we travel a lot and we're away from home a lot, this would allow the owner to come and stay at his house for a couple of weeks each year, which he'd always wanted to do. So he got back in touch with the uh, owner and uh, the, the real estate agent and said, I'd like to have them rent the house. So we heard that. We said, oh, hey, good. You know, that'd be nice. So now we're excited again. And, and then uh, we said, how much? And they said, oh, well, we can't afford it. So we got depressed. And then she, t she, told the real, she told the owner, and he came back and said, well, tell them they can have it for what they can afford. So she told us that, and we got all excited again. It, is this beginning to sound familiar? <laughs> you know, we get excited, we get depressed, we get elated, we get excited, we get bored, we get, you know. We do this with everything in our life. We get jerked around by the least little thing that floats through our awareness or our attention. Mindfulness practice is something about developing a long-range view. We eventually ended up buying this property. How did we ever do that? But through you know, some uh, great gifts from friends and students and a great donation and a reduction on the part of the owners, um, we've now bought this property and are creating a Dharma Hermitage a sanctuary and hermitage there. So we now have a long-range view of what we're doing with this uh, piece of property. Mindfulness is about developing a long-range view, knowing that, yes, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get jerked around by the ups and downs. But when you have this long-range view, it smooths it all out. There's a level of confidence, a level of uh, ease, a certain tranquility, a certain uh, smoothness to it all, even though there is the ups and downs. It's like watch, watching your investments on Wall Street, you know? If you're one of these buy and hold people, you know, you say, look, 10 years down, I'm going to be all right. But if you watch it on a day-to-day -day basis, you are going to be flying, you're going to be elated and depressed a lot. But 10 years out, you'll be all right. Suzuki Roshi, a uh, great Zen master in the Bay Area, said, we each have our own unique personal tendencies, but if you try to get rid of them, or if you try not to think, or not to hear the sound of the stream during meditation, it is not possible. 
Let your ears hear without trying to hear. Let the mind think without trying to think and without trying to stop it. That is practice. More and more you will have this rhythm or strength as the power in your practice. Through the development of tranquility, calming the mind down, we can begin to see the arising and passing away of all of this stuff in our life. The excitement, the depression, the elation, the fear, the clinging, the letting go, the coming, the going, the arising, the passing away. Kala Rinpoche, another Tibetan teacher, said, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. But there is a reality. We are that reality. And when you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. When we see this, this, this incessant arising and passing away, coming and going, coming into being, passing out of being, being happy, being sad, being depressed, being fearful, being clinging, being joyful, being balanced, being imbalanced. You see, we're really not any of it. We experience it all, but no one of these experiences is really who we are. We're none of them, and yet, were all of them. Paradoxical. But that's the way it is. Insight practice is learning to live with this truth. Learning to live with the truth that everything changes. There is no stable, unchanging core to ourselves, or anyone else, or anything else. Everything, including ourselves, is merely an appearance due to a conjunction of conditions, a vast, complex web of conditions. And when any one of those conditions changes, our sense of ourself and everything else changes with it. Events don't happen to us. We are the happening of events, of conditions. As conditions unfold, we happen. It's a difficult understanding to open to. It takes a lot of letting go. Letting go of our fears and our clinging, whatever we think we are or must have. Letting it go so that we can truly be with the way things are, changing in every moment. A quote (coughs) that is often, that the windsurfers on Maui uh, seem to live by. (coughs) The past is frozen, the future is vapor, only the present is fluid. with this quote from Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche where he talks about the development of this wisdom the ability to live with the way things are that mindfulness is the, the guide to he says often we think that we can buy wisdom people have spent lots of money trying to do that but they are unable to accomplish very much. It is very important to realize that wisdom cannot be bought or sold, but wisdom has to be practiced personally. Then we begin to realize the value of wisdom. It is priceless. So let's sit. Let the words settle down for a minute. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, 
but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life but you do not know why, you are just lucky and you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. William Stafford